0: Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week, I think we all need a laugh. Our guest, thankfully, has us covered. T. Kingfisher, a.k.a. Ursula Vernon, is the author of horror novels that manage to be both snortingly funny and skin-crawlingly creepy at the same time. And that's no mean feat, especially when she does it by reworking Edgar Allan Poe, who, let's face it, was never the most light-hearted of authors. But that's what she does. Ursula's new novella, What Moves the Dead, is a fresh take on the fall of the House of Usher. It shifts the time, it adds new characters, and it features even more mushrooms, fungi and mould than the original, if such a thing is possible. Consequently, we talk a lot about mycology, but we also cover loads of other fun stuff, like whether we enjoy explanations in horror how Albanian inheritance laws inspire the novella's gender dynamics, and how Ursula's grandmother would have excelled at polygamy had it been invented in time. (laughs) Oh, and Mothman. We talk about Mothman. Lots of that bug-eyed harbinger of batshittery. Remember, you can support this show by joining Talking Scared Patreon. A few quid a month gets you loads of bonus content, such as more chat from T. Kingfisher and almost every other guest and you can sign up at patreon.com slash talking scared pod or use the link in the show notes but now come with me to a shaky looking house on the edge of a deep black tarn don't close your eyes or you may end up in the crypt let's talk scared Hi Ursula, and well, welcome back to Talking Scared. I am delighted to be back. <laughs> nice to hear. You were you were last on the show way back in October twenty twenty, episode nine.
1: Oh God, has it been that long? I can't tell anymore what is uh, uh, pandemic time and <laughs> what is just me getting older.
0: <laughs> well, how have the last eighteen months treated you?
1: I did. Pretty good. I I can't complain. I've I've written a few books. I've published a few books. Uh, The garden is is doing well. Uh, I haven't punched anyone and no one is in jail. So everything's good.
0: Yeah. Comprehensive win in the middle of a series of global crises. I think that's the most you can hope you can hope for.
1: Uh, Really? Some days, some days that's a victory.
0: You and your garden, though. Your garden gives me solace online. Some days when it's just... When it's just a lot of bleakness happening in the world, you'll post a picture of something in your garden I just kind of think you know what I should probably just turn my computer off and go and stand in my own garden. that might help i'm
1: oh, I'm so glad it can help uh, yeah. yeah i it I certainly retreat there a lot, although I usually take my phone with me so it's I'm not completely <laughs> you know away from the outside world
0: yeah um I'm really pleased though to have a chance to speak to you again because you do inject some humor into this whole horror thing. Um, I, I've consumed nothing but horror novels for 98 straight weeks in a row now, and, and the laughs are a prized commodity. Um, I,
1: I, Yeah, I can't imagine that. Uh, uh, I, I know a lot of people who don't read horror would think that would warp your worldview, but honestly, all the horror authors I know are such sweet people that uh, it, it probably just makes you feel nicer and and maybe not I don't know
0: (laughs) (laughs) it's quite yeah it's quite a nice thing reading books by people who who I now know now that's a weird thing all the books I read about people that I speak to often daily on social media it's a it's it's a weird really it's a quite wholesome thing even if they are about awful awful situations
1: Well, the funny thing is that uh, if I get to know someone before I read their books, it becomes very hard for me to read the, to to pick up one of their books because I'm like, "Oh God, I like you." What if I don't <laughs> like your book? And then it will be horribly awkward, and I I don't know what to do.
0: <laughs> well, there's there's no problem with that because I do like your book um, because oh, no. it it's done what I thought was impossible, which is you've made Edgar Allan Poe funny.
1: Well. Uh, to to Poe's defense, he he did uh try to write humor on several occasions. Gosh, he tried to write humor on several occasions.
0: <laughs> not not known for his jokes, though, old Edgar.
1: No, uh, the only one I can think of off the top of my head is uh, uh, "Loss of Breath," uh, which is a sort of obscure short story uh, about uh, someone who loses his breath and uh, dies. Or would be dead, you know, in several dozen different ways before encountering the person who has caught his breath. And it's, I'm not going to say it's hilarious, but he was trying. Yeah,
0: but on the whole, much better at rhapsodizing dead women, I I think. Uh,
1: You know, we all have our individual (laughs) skill sets.
0: (laughs) Yeah, Your book is called What Moves the Dead, which is out from... Tornight, Fire, and Titan next week, we believe. What? Can uh, yes, you...
1: July 12th. I looked it up.
0: <laughs> what can you tell us about it?
1: Uh, well, it is, in fact, based on The Fall of the House of Usher. And it's a uh, sort of, uh, I don't know if it's a retelling or a, uh, okay, I'll be honest. Uh, if it was still in copyright, we would call this book uh, Fix Fick. Of fall of the House of Usher, it is. Um, I, I and it is terribly arrogant, I think, probably to look at uh, Poe and say there are problems with that, and I can fix it. But that's kind of what I did with House of Usher. Um, I I don't know how long it's been since you have read the Fall of the House of Usher. It had been years and years, decades for me, because. I first read Poe when I was a weird kid who, with a you know, way too high reading level, and my grandmother, in an effort to uh, interest me in the classics, got me one of those you know very swanky leather-bound collections mm-hmm. of of the complete works of uh, various authors. And the only ones I ever read were uh, Poe and Jack London and uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. So sorry, Charles Dickens. But anyway, uh, the the Poe collection, you know, I had read multiple times as a kid, but I hadn't revisited it as an adult, and I was astonished when I picked up Fall of the House of Usher how short it was. Uh, and I don't know if that's because as a kid it, it looms so, books seem so much longer, or if it's just that Usher, you know, has this sort of place in, in horror literature that seems very large but it's short i i i don't know if it's even a novelette it is not long and the narrator is not the kind of person you really want to have around when your sister has risen from the dead and you're having a neurotic fit uh he's he's really quite useless instead of doing anything uh you know like maybe we should go check and see if the corpse is actually moving. <laughs> he reads like dramatic poetry aloud. And then when lo and behold, the the uh, Madeline Usher rises from the dead and walks into the room uh, and Roderick Usher, uh, I mean, spoiler alert, if you haven't read a hundred year old story, uh, screams, falls down dead, uh, does does the narrator stop and check anyone's pulse? Is he like, Oh my God, are you okay? Can I get you to a doctor? No, he screams and runs out of the house and then the house falls down. So it works out well for him, but there's no, I'm going to attempt to drag my friend out of the now collapsing house because what if he's just fainted? No, it's all just scream, fall down, run away. And I, I was kind of annoyed by that. I, I, thought it showed a, a distinct lack of, of character. And so I started sort of noodling around with the idea. And also I wanted to know what the heck was wrong with Madeline Usher, who just gets buried alive and uh, is mentioned in passing that she has, I think, catalepsy, which was one of those diagnoses that were were describing her symptoms, but we have no idea what's causing them. And so I... Uh, uh, sat down and started trying to dig around and figure out, you know, I wanted wanted the explanation. I am the person who always wants to know how the magic trick is done.
0: Mm -hmm. And
1: uh, out of that came What Moves the Dead.
0: (laughs) So when you said you were kind of fixing Paul's story, and and I'm okay with the hubris of that, by the way. I think these things sometimes need fixing. When you're saying you're fixing it, so we talked about fixing the narrator um, and in the sense of the ambiguity, the fact that there is just no explanation for any of this stuff. Are they? Were they the two things you were wanting to to impose on this?
1: Yeah, uh, and and fix fic uh, is a sort of specific term of art in fan fiction where you have a work and you're like, there are problems with this, and I can see how you fix them. And I will now write something that fixes it. So, yeah, it was it was me going in and going. I, I can see the the levers I need to pull to uh, make this more uh, appealing to me. Anyway,
0: anyone who's read your stuff, anyone who's listened to you talk, knows that when you're writing your horror stories, as opposed to your your dark fantasy other world that you have, um, with, with horror, you really have this penchant for kind of taking on. Existing classics of the genre that are held in high esteem, and then kind of doing something with them. So, your book, The Twisted Ones, is a reworking or whatever word you want to use. You know, it touches on Macken's The White People, and then The Hollow Places takes on Algernon Blackwood's The Willows, both of which are hugely respected stories. But I think they're stories that are largely respected by aficionados whereas house of usher is like one of the central load bearing columns of the American gothic tradition D- did that require a different approach uh
1: if it did I didn't think about it at the time i uh, I it, it I exist in in probably the weird space of I have read a lot of pulp and uh these and, and early pulp is is kind of what uh, the white people and the willows were at the time mm-hmm. they uh, and so uh i didn't really have a a sense at the time that uh the willows was necessarily more obscure than usher i mean i would have known that if i thought about it but uh, as with many things, I uh, just plow forward and don't think about it until after the fact, which is probably uh, why I am successful at <laughs> many things. Uh, it, it's do think, amazing. Do you, think, do you
0: think if you paused and stopped, you would kind of lose the bottle to take on something like Poe?
1: some very clever soul said, all you need in life is ignorance and confidence and then success <laughs> is Sure. And I won't swear that uh, I don't live by that. I I think I still would have taken on Poe. I, uh, once I had started, once I I have to like read the story and then my brain starts working on it. And there are lots of pulp stories I've read and gone, I have nothing to say about this. Uh, But once I start working on it in my head, yeah, it, it doesn't matter anymore. I'm like, nope, this needs work. Uh, It's placing in the literary canon does not really affect that, uh, which is, again, either I I hope it's obliviousness and not arrogance, but I won't swear one way or the other.
0: Well, I'm I'm thinking that ignorance and confidence. That's very much the podcaster's credo. (laughs) Basically, my life is sitting in a room pretending I know more than I do and saying it very confidently into a microphone.
1: And 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 writing is much the same way, especially <laughs> I mean, maybe nonfiction too. I don't I don't know, but I hope not. I hope people actually know in nonfiction, but I have no idea what I'm doing, and I have to stop and look things up every five. One of the big problems with uh, working on uh, what moves the dead is because it is set in um a specific historical time frame uh 1890 something or other uh really something or other not i I don't know the the exact number uh i had i kept having to stop and look up technology and scientific discoveries and then so I'm, i'm digging around going i don't know what year this was invented And then I finally find it and then I write with great confidence that, you know, Easton picks up uh, their mining lantern or whatever. Uh, I don't think it wasn't a mining lantern in this one, but in the sequel, which I am working on, uh, I am having to read a lot about uh, coal mining in the 1890s, which is much more fascinating than it should be.
0: I've had a similar thing with quarrying in the 1920s. That's my current thing learning all about how quarries work.
1: Yeah, and it's it's amazing and so complicated. I just, I, I honestly thought that a coal mine was basically you dig a tunnel and hack the coal out and it's like, no, we have to have all of these giant pumps to, you know, pump the water out. We have air ventilation, you know, fires set to draw air up and it's like, oh Lord, there's a lot of tech that goes into this.
0: <laughs> Well, you mentioned the, the dates of this story, of your version of the story, What Moves the Dead. Yeah, it's the 1890s, whereas... I mean, I don't, th- I don't think the House of Usher had a setting, but it was written in, the, in 1839, so presumably you have changed the time period. W- what yes. was the reasoning behind that?
1: Uh, honestly, I uh, really wanted to use a relative of Beatrix Potters, because I, <laughs> Okay. I, it's not a spoiler, I think, because the cover is covered in mushrooms to say that fungus plays a large role in, in yeah. the book. And Beatrix Potter was uh, wanted to be a mycologist uh, her, her whole life. And uh, because uh, she was female, she wasn't really taken seriously as a uh, as a scientist. And so she did a lot of scientific illustration of mushrooms before going on to children's books and i uh, i couldn't quite get her in so i had to invent a great aunt but there were there were a lot of things that uh, uh, i wanted to uh, include that i had to keep sort of moving the date later and later otherwise uh, for example a, a lot of what we know about mushrooms we didn't necessarily know in 1839 and so at various points i'm you know digging up uh, reports uh, of when we have discovered uh the funguses that hunt nematodes okay well that was found in germany in 1870 something so okay i could use that yeah it's uh
0: <laughs> yeah fungi is very important in what moves the dead it, it goes some way towards answering the title's question but the book your book comes out after Sylvia Moreno Garcia's Mexican Gothic, which is is a book, by the way, that I initially kind of sort of dismissed, um, even though she was a guest on the show. And subsequently, I'm seeing the ripples in the pun that that book has had, that I just did not give it credit for at the time. Sorry, I haven't clarified for people who don't know. Sylvia's book has a similarly mycological Gothic conceit. How did you navigate around what she'd done?
1: I almost didn't. Uh, I had, I started uh, What Moves the Dead uh, before I had read Mexican Gothic. And I was, you know, going along. The, the narrator, Easton, popped onto the page immediately. And I was like, okay, I am enjoying this. I'm having a blast. And I know it's about mushrooms because Poe is obsessed with mushrooms. Like the whole opening to House of Usher is just fungus and vegetation and fungus. Mm-hmm. And then I picked up Mexican Gothic and was like, and this says everything that needs to be said <laughs> about crumbling houses and mushrooms. So <laughs> I'm out. But uh, th- th- there were sort of two factors at work. One is that if you give 10 authors the same story prompt, you will get 12 different story ideas. It will wind up being like wildly different. And uh one thing that a friend of mine and I always say to each other, I'm like, you or the, she'll be like, "I can't write this, you know, it's been done." And I'm like, "Yes, but you haven't done it yet and still it 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 I stopped working on it for like six months. I was like i there's you know, damn, this is really good i I have nothing more to say, but the idea kept nagging at me, and also the my nice editor at Nightfire was like give me some idea, throw pitch me anything. And I'm like, uh, uh, I got this thing with follow the house of Usher and the contract, that was a Friday and the contract was in my inbox Monday. And I'm like, okay, now I guess I have to figure it out. <laughs> uh, so uh, it was, it was a confluence of factors. And in the end uh, I wound up with a very, different I think sort of fungus menace I guess because I was very interested in the sort of interface between uh mushrooms and and mammals or vertebrates and the difficulties the the two are are not compatible essentially um and and many you know a lot of our conventional uh people taken over by evil mushrooms uh sort of stories and and Mexican Gothic is is definitely the preeminent one but there's I, I think we're in like a, a fungus punk academic we
0: very much are yeah we are in a fungus punk thing I was thinking like the words of like you know Aaliyah Whiteley and Jeff Vandermeer they you know weird fiction maybe more than horror is just being dominated by fungus at the moment
1: yeah, I, I don't know. Sometimes you get an idea whose time has just, like, landed, and mm-hmm. suddenly we're all writing fungus.
0: Uh, and, I mean,
1: even going back to uh, uh, a lot of zombie uh, stories for a while, we're all it was all cordyceps fungus all the time. And I was just thinking about the, the interfaces, basically, how these are two incompatible operating systems, and somehow uh, the... Uh, the fungus has to interact in a way that it uh, like, what would it be like if you're a fungus and you're dealing with uh, suddenly uh, uh, vertebrates like, like sight would be completely baffling because, okay, maybe you have photoreceptors, but what is this weird thing that has two little jelly filled sacs at the front of their body? That is where the photoreceptors come in. What the, who thought of that? And so there was a lot of uh, me just trying to deal with the sort of uh, the, the difficulties of interacting Uh, part of it may just be my irritation at having seen independence day and the laptop, the Apple laptop interfacing with the alien computers (laughs) without any problem. I'm like, that's not, no, that's not how this would work. A lot of it is about the, uh, the, difficulties i suppose there which other and and some other authors have tackled that and and then some are just like yep fungus in the brain all right it works so it's all what part you want to hand wave i guess you
0: so so you say an explanation you know and you just said you said in this conversation i always want explanations and you give us one in this book because there is no wishy-washy oh it's an evil fungus you know it's you You've basically slipped a sort of science science fiction biological body horror into a gothic novel with real rigorous reasoning for things but i I was really happy when you wrote that you want explanations because I do too. I love a book that can as- explain away its 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 threads in a satisfying way, but that seems to be really unfashionable. all I ever see. In afterwards and in tweets and often here on this podcast is people saying that explanations in some way destroy them the scariness and and the the horror I just don't think it's true
1: I I think that it's it's I mean it's hard to say because certainly the unexplained is you know the great fear of the unknown and the unexplained uh insert Lovecraft quote here uh, but is is very powerful, and and one of the reasons, one of the things I, uh, the things that I am scared of, I am often scared of because I don't know what they want, and I can't reason with them. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, uh, I have a bad habit when I write horror of saying it's not that I'm trying to write something scary so much as it's just interesting, and the setting happens to be, you know, in this case, a, a gothic mansion like uh, yeah it's it's horror in the conventional genre sense but i like it but it's just interesting it's not that it's meant to terrify you it's just meant to be a really cool mm-hmm. sequence of events that happen and okay yes maybe it's creepy and there's some body horror and some building tension and whatnot but isn't it just interesting uh that was also my thing when I wrote The Hollow Places. I kept saying, I don't know if it's scary. I just think it's interesting. And then my readers are like, what the hell is wrong with you? But uh...
0: I mean, I, I always think about the Prometheus thing when that first came out and everyone just decried it because it explained too much. You know, the, the, the alien kind of prequel. And I just yes. loved, the, I loved the, the sort of the Baroque lore of it all. And, I, and I, yeah. I, I, love, I love that feeling of dots being joined and and that it, when things lock into place, it just it gives me a really satisfying narrative response.
1: I think Prometheus suffered from a lot of problems that it, it like it, it could have been done well and locked into place. I don't think the locking into place was what was wrong with it, if that makes any sense. I think yeah. I think the parts where it fell down were uh, uh in in plotting and everything else, not necessarily an over explanation uh-huh. because yeah. I had to, at the end of it, I had to go like, look up and be like, what the hell did I just watch? Okay. <laughs> okay. Yes. I, okay. But this throws the timelines off and whatnot. Yeah. I, I, I like a good explanation. I, I think that some things are still scary if you know how they're done. Take, uh, okay. The saw movies, for example, they're very creepy and they're horror and they're or gore or torture porn or whatever. I mean, depending on what number it is, but it's not like you don't know how it's done. <laughs> like you, you, you know, basically all of the steps to it. It, it. It's not a, a, uh, it's not a mystery of, of how the horror works. It's just, wow, that's messed up.
0: Hmm. And I think you've done a basic, I think you've done a good job in everything I've said, like locking things in joining the dots Explaining things with these mushrooms um, in this in this moulding manner by the tarn. I think it's. It, <laughs> I, I like that you answered those questions. Oh, um, well, thank you. So that's the, that's the explanation part I think, done. That's one one half of what you were trying to do. The other is this narrator, who. Am I right in thinking the narrator is um, unnamed in the original?
1: Uh, yeah, I, I don't remember uh, him having a name in, in Usher, no.
0: Uh, it's been, it has he's... been a long time since I've read that book, and it's one of those where if someone said to me, do you know the story of the House of Usher? I'd be like, yeah, of course I do. And then I'd go, oh, actually, I think I do. Yeah. You
1: know? uh, no, I'm pretty sure he's an unnamed narrator, uh, which was not the case with, with Easton.
0: <laughs> no, yeah, you've replaced this unnamed narrator with, with Easton, and there is there is a lot to unpack in Easton's character. Um, just to be clear, because we have had this shift in time, so th- some things have changed. Is the implication here that Easton is the unnamed narrator of the original story, that they're the same person in the various iterations? Uh,
1: not really. Uh, it's I, I would say it's, it's more of a retelling or a revisitation because uh, Easton would never uh, scream and run out of the house when people fell down uh they'd be grabbing roderick and looking for a pulse so uh i i don't think they're they're really the the same person i also introduced a a completely new doctor character in there too uh because i needed a medical professional to provide commentary
0: (laughs) (laughs) just to check the goddamn pulses uh,
1: yeah and and also because uh roderick usher is 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 pretty useless in fall of the house of usher he i mean he sits around in his moldering house and plays the piano and does weird paintings and (laughs) which fine you know as someone who sits around in their hopefully not moldering house and occasionally does weird paintings i'm not here to judge but i don't do it while my sister is not decaying in the basement so,
0: yeah. Roderick Roderick is very, very much the um, the Jared Leto of Gothic protagonists.
1: I don't know. I, I'm not sure if, if Leto means well. I get the feeling that that Roderick sort of means well, but is just deeply ineffectual and broody. So.
0: But, but we're, we're agreed that Jared Leto is a sinister person needs to be watched.
1: <laughs> watched uh, uh, carefully in case uh, he does anything. Yes. I'm not sure if some of
0: his movies need to be watched. (laughs) No, that's very true. Very true. This episode is supported by Novelik, the book app for people who want their suggestions from fellow readers, not an algorithm. Novelik is the perfect way to curate your TBR list with real recommendations from fellow-minded readers broken down into genre, including, yeah, horror, and all-adjacent delights. You can download Novelic for free on iOS or Android devices and start browsing right away or join a book club for more in-depth chat on your favourite topic. The Talking Scared Book Club is up and running for Patreon members. Try Novelic for a nicer way to find your next read. Easton's gender is a complex issue. We, we've used the, the pronoun they, but even that isn't particularly correct for this story but for reasons of, reasons of simplicity let's get yeah the J.
1: I, in English in English uh, uh Easton would translate it as they uh I imagine
0: because we start off very briefly with this assumption that that Easton is male or maybe we don't maybe I just did maybe that's just the patriarchal bias that we're laboring against um but rather than this it, than an easy twist that Easton is female, you actually create this whole alternative gender structure with a range of new pronouns like va and va, cat and can, and ta and tha. It's a fascinating addition to the story.
1: Yes, and uh, there is some stuff about gender and Usher, but uh, most of it's, uh, you know, who are you going to have buried alive, I guess. Uh, and since everyone's useless, I don't know if it really even counts as as uh, sexist. We, we can frankly argue that the only person with any agency in the Usher story is the woman who gets buried alive, who actually gets up and does something, namely terrify her brother to death. But uh, Easton just kind of appeared, and I had, had this alternate gender, uh, uh, non-binary, I guess trinary, for lack of a better term, kicking around in my head for quite a while. And suddenly in Easton, it just all came together. And uh, to to do a very quick summation for listeners who may not have read it yet, this is a Ruritanian Idol, which is, uh, or at least a, a nod to that, which was a, a genre of book where you invented a very small European country and usually did things with the monarchy. This, uh, in this case, uh, we have Roravia, which is where the book takes place, and Galatia, where Easton is from. And Galatia has a very complicated language with like seven sets of pronouns, including, as they say, one for rocks and one just for talking to God. And, uh, one of the quirks is that, uh, soldiers and warriors get their own set of pronouns as, as an honorific, which uh, is fine, except uh, it never really occurred to anyone until someone who was uh, assigned female at birth essentially showed up to enlist. And the military was like, we didn't think of this because all the pronouns on the forms are, I mean, we everybody knows you can't do that, but there's not any paperwork that says you can't do that. So yeah, here's your gun. Let's go one of the the inspirations of this is a uh, uh, albanian uh group in the in the Balkans who had uh, uh basically uh, sworn men where they had very strict inheritance laws that uh women could not hold property and, or be the head of a household and this was a real problem for inheritance and uh so you couldn't get a work around to that law but some clever soul was like, okay, but, uh, why don't we just change who gets to be men? And so you could, uh, basically take an oath and you were now, if you were, were female, you take an oath, you were now effectively male and socially you were male. You, you could hold property. You, uh, could be the head of a household. You could engage in blood feuds and whatnot. And, it, I liked how practical it was as a workaround. It, it was the we have an immutable law, but why don't we just so rather than change that law, why don't we just change the entire structure of gender to get around it? And uh, I loved that. It, it was it was such a, a such a human thing to do. Plenty of cases where uh, mothers who uh, were widowed and didn't have any sons were like okay i can go live with my in-laws for the rest of my life which will be terrible (laughs) or i can beg my daughter to become my son and the uh daughter was really like all right and is now the son and uh so while well, this isn't quite that, uh, that, was, that was more just what, what spun me off thinking about it. This is not meant to be in any way a 1-1 map because they don't consider uh, sworn men to be a third gender or anything. No, you're, it's still a binary gender. It's just uh, you're, you're still one or the other. In uh, Easton's case, it was, okay, uh, why don't you just swear an oath as a soldier? And now you are a soldier, you get soldier pronouns, and here you go and so uh which is a workaround for we don't have enough people in the military women can't join the military and our culture but what if it so that tied in with a lot of things i'd been thinking of about pronouns and about a lot of women i grew up with who wanted to be fighter pilots and uh couldn't at the time and so that was yeah how i came up with it and uh Easton is really kind of a delight to write. They are uh, they are a lot of fun. It's fun to be in their head, and they uh, they have a lot of things to say about Americans, which I really enjoyed writing. Being an American myself, I get to say that.
0: <laughs> yeah, you. Do. I've picked out some choice quotes to address, but before we get to that, just to stick with the pronoun thing for a second, because it's such an interesting thing in in a relatively slight book. Actually, you know, it's the it's largely like at the top end of novella. This isn't it, you know, um, and it's a whole lot of technical world building to get across when you're also trying to tussle with, with one of the most famous horror stories of all time. So it it, it, it seems worthy of note, but you actually employ these alternative pronouns in Easton's first person narration. So. Eastern regularly uses "can" to refer to themselves. That's the that's the pronoun that they have, you know, that they have as as a member of the military. Can, and and that struck me as a bold move because we we live in a world in which so many people are are still complaining about the supposed grammatical problems of using they and them. So I thought putting a whole different pronoun into a piece of fiction largely without warning. We are just trying to provoke bigots. <laughs> <laughs> I I won't deny that occasionally I
1: have a stick and see a hornet's nest and and <laughs> try to apply one to the other. Uh yes, I I if if this makes uh people who I I do not wish joy on unhappy, <laughs> then uh I'm I'm thrilled. But uh that though, I mean, spite is a great motivator, I'm not gonna lie. But also I have a lot of friends who, who do not use uh the the sort of conventional pronouns and or you know have switched them or prefer they and I was like I I feel you they needed a narrator that uh was having the the same uh, uh that was also, you know. Outside the the uh, uh, sort of traditional uh, English set of mm-hmm. pronouns, but uh, I, I certainly don't expect anyone to start using ka and "con" as their pronouns. I'll be very surprised if they do, and and I don't even know how I'll feel about it. But <laughs> it was just fun to do coming up with with new uh, genders and whatnot is is a grand science fiction tradition Lord knows I don't know if it's a horror tradition uh, yeah and and yeah it is a it certainly uh, uh, added a a number of words into a book that ran right up to the line of novella I mean literally it is a novella is uh, 40,000 words or less, and this is 39,995.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a lot crammed in there.
1: I tried to make it fun, though.
0: Well, it very, very much is fun, and, and part of the fun is this thing about Americans. Some of the funniest passages in this book are at the expense of Denton, and and my my listeners know, anyone who's listened to our previous conversation, I talked at length about comedy and horror. I don't want to do that too much here because I don't want to retread the same ground. But we've got to touch on some of it because it seems such I um, I don't know, <laughs> I keep using the word bold, but it it, it seems such a, a bold thing to do to, to take this, the, the grimmest and most dolorous of all Gothic stories and try and make it funny. But you do. And it's at, at Denton's expense. So he's this American doctor who has come to treat Madeline and Easton is just so dismissive of him my personal favorite quote is um, i offered denton my hand because americans will shake hands with the table if you don't stop them
1: <laughs> it's yeah it, it's true and in fact uh, in the sequel that i'm working on where uh, god help us easton winds up in america uh, uh the, it, it basically starts out that everyone is shaking hands with them <laughs> and like uh, and the waiter came up he did not shake our hand all right <laughs>
0: <laughs> but, the, but the flip side is that you also write this, this sentence. And again, I, I highlight this as if, as if it was funny at first, then realise, oh, it's actually it's not funny. Easton says of Denton that he wore his clothes as if they were clothes rather than symbols of rank. And I started thinking about that. And I, I, I may be seeing too much in this, but I started thinking, is that a lampoon of... American fashion from a European perspective, or is it actually the a, a kind of sending up of the snobbishness of Europeans from an American perspective? Because you are right. Americans wear clothes for as utility objects. Europeans wear them to mean something.
1: It uh, uh, certainly at the the uh, in the era that this is written, I think that was uh, a lot more true than it probably is now. It may Mm -hmm. still be true now. I I am probably not equipped to say. But uh, I also I read a lot of Regency romance and Regencies are uh, very, very narrow, very strict historical period in the early 1800s. And they are obsessed with clothes. And you can like the 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 markers of clothing as uh, they tell you you know the social rank, the uh, the wealth of the person wearing them, their how fashionable they are, things like that is extremely uh, detailed it, it's it's used as a marker of all kinds of things, but rank being one of them. And uh, part of it is uh, that Denton is just wearing clothes. Uh, and, and there is something I think about the the sort of european versus american dichotomy there there's also something about i think the military versus civilian mm-hmm. uh thing there because even though Denton has been in the military he's uh, he was as a doctor in during the uh the american Civil War and uh he was uh, the the military corps is usually you know somewhat outside of the the hierarchy to a certain extent uh obviously not completely outside but uh, if you're a doctor you can get away with things that an engineer cannot I think in the military so he is uh he is a veteran but he is not a military uh I almost said military man because that's the the phrasing but a military person the way that uh Easton is because Easton is a soldier to the core Easton is a veteran and that is That is their their identity. And they it's not that, you know, they enjoy fighting or killing people. They actually hate it. But you know how it is. There are people who are just lifetime military and that's what they are. And uh, my dad is lifetime Navy. And yeah,
0: my dad spent three years in the military from 1957 to 1960. And even now, what's that, 60 years later, he still irons clothes as if the sergeant major is watching.
1: (laughs) Yes, exactly. And uh, uh, my father was a naval officer, has very good table manners. And uh, because they basically sit down and teach the officers an entire course. And this is how you eat dinner Mm -hmm. in front, you know, uh, correctly and politely. And you can uh, make him absolutely nuts by talking, holding your fork up with food on it, which is apparently called suspending food. And like his eye will start to twitch. It's uh, I, I try to use this knowledge only for good.
0: <laughs> um, it does. You, you said something a while back there about how they, you know, they don't like killing people. The soldiers. It, it does strike me that amongst all the, the the piss taken about Denton and about also about the inadequacy of, of the Galician army, because you, you you quite a lot of jokes at their expense. Oh yeah. Amongst all that, there's a serious vein of commentary about the aftermath of war and potentially of PST. There's a brilliant line that Easton says when. In, in a serious moment with with Denson where uh, Easton says, I came into the room and thumped him on the back and did all the things that soldiers do with each other because most of us have forgotten how to cry. And I just thought that's, it's quite a serious strand that you're burying within this witty banter that goes back and forth.
1: Yeah, uh, there's a uh, uh, dear friend of mine is a... Uh, uh a veteran with serious PTSD and God knows there are a lot of uh, a lot of them out there. And there is a, a element of uh, we, we ignore that frequently and I think we're getting better about it in addressing it in fiction, but every uh, soldier I have known, and I, I have known a fair number of them at this point, um, and many of the ones that I knew early on had come out of Vietnam, and they all had uh, PTSD in, in ways that I would struggle to describe in fiction. Uh, and the, the there is a, a very strong element of, even if... Uh, even if you you are sort of snarky about the other person in this case, and, and in Denton's defense, he absolutely comes through in the end and uh, uh, despite being an American, uh, there is, I think, a sense that we have been through a thing that we cannot adequately explain to anyone who has not been there. Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, so I think there is a certain... Um, Camaraderie based on we are both survivors of a thing that people should not have to survive. And also, I mean, uh, I don't think I've ever known it. I'm sure there, I know, in fact, there are plenty of humorless military people out there, but all the ones I have known that I've wanted to spend any time with had gallows humor, just mm-hmm. <laughs> like you wouldn't believe. So,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a nice blend of, of, Mockery and fraternal camaraderie that, and it's quite nice at the end when these people band together to to do something. But we won't we won't spoil what happens. It is quite satisfying. I'm glad to hear you're writing a sequel. Is Denton going to appear in the sequel? Uh,
1: yes, actually, uh, Denton uh, summons Easton to America because Denton's uh, cousin has gone missing in a uh, coal mine, and there are and uh, has sent some sort of unsettling letters. And Easton's like, I've never been in a coal mine in my life. <laughs> I, uh, is,
0: it, is it a riff on a on a classic? I'm trying to work out what it might be.
1: Uh, I will tell you that creatures in there are not Shoggoths. But if I was going to write a Shoggoth, that's what would happen. <laughs>
0: <laughs> There's a line from What Moves the Dead where you say, people get hung up on happiness and joy, but fun will take you at least as far. And it's generally cheaper to obtain. Now, I, I highlighted that right away because I'm always calling books fun on this show. But this being a horror podcast, the word fun feels like damning with faint praise. Yet you seem to be someone who writes specifically with fun in mind, even in the darkest parts of your stories. Does Is that fair?
1: I don't know that uh, I think it's giving me too much credit to say I'm writing with it in mind. I am, I am fundamentally uh, very frivolous. And it's very hard for me to keep a story serious for very long. I I start writing, the humor just creeps into it. I I can't, uh, I can't keep a straight face forever. And I mean, if, if we were in a foxhole, I I don't know if there are atheists in foxholes, but I'm sure there are a lot of comedians. And uh, <laughs> so I, I am the person who would be making the the snarky remarks as and descended upon us. So uh, my horror winds up being funny. And uh, my fantasy often usually winds up being funny too. Once in a while, I can do a short story that is not funny, that is very serious, but I can't sustain that for more than about, you know, Seven or eight thousand words before I start going on about Americans and tablecloths and uh, whatnot, <laughs> and, and I also think that fun that there is a lot to be said for fun. I uh, one of my early goals in writing was I wanted to write people's comfort reads, like I wanted to write the books that everything is terrible and you just cannot deal with it, so you pick up a book that you love and that makes you feel better and you reread it and and it's comforting and i realized moving into horror was perhaps a weird (laughs) career arc if you want to write comfort reads but i have had people tell me that uh the twisted ones is one of their comfort reads and i'm like that is wonderful i am i am thrilled uh you are obviously a little twisted yourself but uh, more power to you so
0: (laughs) so so you wouldn't take the word fun as faint praise then
1: Oh god no no i i i mean <laughs> i would hate to not be fun but if if you're not <laughs> having fun reading the book i mean
0: well precisely
1: yeah and also i will i will run a, over the time limit just a smidge i'm sorry but my grandmother was a uh, a very unusual woman and uh she was extremely charismatic uh, she was like one of those those rare people who just have the natural charisma uh out the out the wazoo and if she had been a different sort of person, she probably would have founded a religion or uh conquered a small European country or something but uh granted where she was born and the time frame she just got married a lot and she uh she was a devout catholic but uh she was i she she wanted i think she would have been great at being polyamorous had that been invented uh yet but uh, <laughs> it it certainly had not been invented in uh in uh rural oregon at the time so she would get married and uh then she would uh, get uh once she had worn that husband out and they would sort of tap out for a bit Uh, She would uh, divorce them and then get it annulled. And the thing is, this charisma of hers fortunately worked on priests and the paperwork was, you know, not centrally filed anywhere, which is the reason that she was able to get like seven or eight different annulments, which normally, you know, would be a little tricky. Uh, She would just find a young priest and basically fall on his neck and sob that she thought the paperwork had gone through, but it hadn't. And now she was a bigamist in the eyes of the Lord and she was going to hell and could he save her? And the priests were not immune to Grandma's charisma either and were just like, oh, my God, yes, of course, let me let me annul this this marriage for you, you nice woman. And but the thing is she married some of these husbands two and three different ta- two and three times like a piece they they would just tap out for a while go you know take some vitamin supplements and rest up and then come back for another round and the thing is she was not beautiful and she was she was clever but she was not intelligent she was certainly not rich she was fun if you were around her you were having fun like everything was this grand adventure and that, I think, was what kept these these guys coming back. I mean, even when she had had, you know, the bad old chemo they got in the 80s and uh, mastectomies and everything and no hair, like, men were still falling out of the woodwork because it was just so much fun to be around her. And uh, the the moral of the story, I think, is that fun will take you a lot farther than just about anything else. So...
0: Well, I, yeah. I mean, what more can I say to that? Grandma, <laughs> your grandma sounds amazing.
1: Uh, yeah, she she was fantastic. I, uh, I admire her greatly, although I, uh, I do not have the kind of stamina and could not stand to date that much. <laughs> <But>
0: <laughs> For the record, I wonder whether you'd met my grandma, because Miss Potter, this forbidding English matron, um, you describe her as one of the fine, fierce old ladies of England. They will climb mountains and make tea on the summit if they need to. We would have done a damn sight better in the war if they'd sent them over instead of the troops. That is my grandmother.
1: <laughs> I, I have met a few of those and uh, and they are, they are certainly a type. And they, yeah. they are an archetype and uh, I admire them and fear them in equal measure.
0: <laughs> yeah, a lot, of, a lot of women from that time were very frightened husbands. Anyway... We've gone all over the place here. Can we finish off with the same old questions? Can you recommend a book for my listeners and tell us why?
1: Uh, If you haven't read it yet, Perdido Street Station is a fabulous book. And uh, it is not humorous or uh, I, I don't even know. Fun is probably not the word I'd use, although maybe. But it is fascinating. It is a fantasy horror Body New Weird, I think, is, is what it's uh, usually classed under, and it is this dense, weird imagery book, and I love it uh, mostly because as a writer and somebody who creates weird imagery, I will go through that book, and every page, every other page, I'm like, damn, I wish I'd thought of that.
0: This is by China Mieville, right? Yes,
1: yes. China Mieville's uh, uh, *Perdido Street Station* and also *The Scar*, the uh, sequel. And uh, he kind of got away from that style later on, which you know writers are allowed to to change. But I really love just the the weird, dense creativity and bizarreness of the world uh, that uh, he came up with in uh, in those two books. So. I recommend them highly. They are not happy books necessarily, but they are fascinating.
0: Yeah. Well, I feel like China Mabel's going to come back into the foreground because we're having a whole summer of industrial action over here in the UK. And he's, he's one of the last remaining Marxist kind of literary figures in the UK. So I think we might be seeing a bit more of him.
1: Oh yeah. I, uh, I, I, I admit most of what I know about UK politics comes from Twitter and and my friends over there, and none of it looks good. So I'm very sorry, but... Uh...
0: Fucking nightmare. I mean, yeah, I mean, my, my, my sympathy is in reverse because I've just read about the Supreme Court thing that's happened.
1: Yes, none of it's good over here either. <laughs> Both of us have the same. Yeah,
0: no. Over here, we're just busy telling poor people they should starve, or you can choose from, from bread or, or having the heating on.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a thing. But yes, so uh, it would not surprise me if, if uh, Mieville came back to the forefront, who, because he is unapologetically Marxist yeah. and more power to him.
0: Yeah, well, that would certainly scare a lot of people. How's this for a segue? <laughs> but tell me, Ursula, what truly scares you?
1: Well, the last time I was on, I, I told you about Gray Aliens, and this time I have to say Mothman. Um, and for much the same reason, Mothman is a cryptid, I mean, almost everybody knows who Mothman is, but a cryptid who lived in near Point Pleasant, West Virginia. And I read about him in a book when I was, you know, I don't know, seven or eight, and was sort of fascinated, but uh and then i saw the movie the mothman prophecies which is terrifying mm-hmm. and is still one of the horror movies that is absolutely terrifying it's it's just this this shadowy winged figure that appears and you don't know what it wants and it is doing these very strange sort of things and certainly in um mothman prophecies there are there are very weird goings on and you don't know what is happening and it is uh, i i find that terrifying which is possibly why i do try to explain things in my books because uh i am okay with ambiguity i am not okay with this cannot be understood and uh, things that cannot be explained or understood creep me the hell out and the fact that mothman could come for me and i couldn't ask him what he wanted, or, you know, I could ask, but he wouldn't answer, and I wouldn't ever know what he wanted, just creeps me the hell out.
0: See, I, I, uh, I always think of him as quite a yeah. benevolent creature.
1: Yeah, I I don't know why. Uh, it's it's not like he's ever killed anybody. Uh, as far as we know, Mothman has never probed anyone, like, like the grey aliens, you know, uh, but... Yeah, I, I find them very unsettling and in fact at one point uh my husband and I were driving uh to uh, uh meet up with some friends and we passed through a little town and I looked at the sign that said it said point pleasant and I realized I was in point pleasant west virginia and I freaked the fuck out. <laughs> <laughs> I was, like, locking the doors, and, and my husband's like, we need to get gas. I'm like, we are getting out of this town before we get gas. It is dark, and uh, we are not stopping anywhere that Mothman might appear to get gas. And, no, you you park under the light. I, I don't want any darkness around us. I'm not getting out of the car. You go get gas from mothman i think you'll uh, find
0: now because he's i think he's somewhere else because he was seen in chernobyl shortly before the uh, disaster
1: yeah he he uh he, he apparently gets around as a as sort of uh a, a harbinger of disaster yeah uh, no, no one suggests that he's causing it just that he shows up in advance i sort of like the silver surfer and galactus i guess yeah but.
0: Well, I'll tell you what, I mean, I, I sometimes do special episodes on this podcast where I get horror authors on to come and talk about the, the, the mad shit that inspires their horror. Like Ali Wilkes came on to talk about Strange Disappearances. If you ever want to talk at length about Mothman, I am always primed and ready, Ursula.
1: I, I would be thrilled to do so. Mothman is 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 despite being terrified of him, he is one of my great loves as well. I have a a sort of Mothman. I am Mothman magnet on the truck because I'm like perhaps he will recognize his own and not take me. So <laughs> well, we'll get that up I would later in the
0: to. year definitely a little Mothman special. But for now, all I can say is thank you for joining me again. It's always an absolute delight. It, I, I think I laugh more in an hour of speaking to you than I do in most of my working day. So um, it's been a blast. And this book, What Moves the Dead, somehow, despite its subject matter and despite its inspirations and its origins, is a blast. And I think anyone who knows the kind of stuff that you do will lap it up. And anyone who doesn't, because it's nice and slight, it'll be a nice introduction to the tone. So, yeah, What Moves the Dead, out from Tor on the 12th of July. But T. Kingfisher, thank you very much for talking, Scared.
1: And thank you so much for having me on. I'm I'm always thrilled to be here. And I am serious. I would happily come back and talk about Mothman.
0: Okay, I'm recording this just a few hours before the episode goes live, and I've just tested positive for COVID. Yeah. To be fair, it's been a good run. First ever infection, as far as I'm aware, but it has breached the defences after all. My positive line was whisper thin, but my wife's looked like it had been drawn with marker pen. She's feeling rough, but we're okay and we're hunkering. This may not be the longest, most eloquent outro, though. I had to recall the intro about a dozen times because I just kept stumbling over my words and that was just 90 seconds of audio, so pray for me when it comes to the outro. <laughs> Illness will not stop me talking about the books I love though and I insist that if any of you have yet to read some T. Kingfisher, you do so now. I'd also recommend going back and listening to our first interview in episode 9, I believe, in which we talk about both of her previous novels, The Twisted Ones and The Hollow Places. Both of those books are fantastically creepy and they both contain at least one enduringly haunting image, but they will still make you laugh more than most outright comedies. What Moves the Dead is a slighter book, and it's slightly more gothic than horror. I don't think this one will haunt you, or scare you, or give you an honest-to-God jump scare, like the Twisted Ones, but her take on Poe is sumptuous and clever, and hysterically funny, and weirdly well thought out, I tell you, that woman knows a worrying amount about mushrooms. If ever we're conquered by extraterrestrial fungi, we need to make Ursula our emissary. What Moves the Dead is just plain fun, and as we discussed, that's a great thing in and of itself. I think T. Kingfisher is a singular voice in contemporary horror. Her fans love her devotedly, but I don't see her name mentioned alongside the Paul Tremblay's, the Joe Hill's, the Catriona Ward's. And it should be. So pick up one of her books. That's my recommendation. Speaking of Paul Tremblay, though, he's got a new novel out. That's always an event. It's out today, and it's called The Paul Bearers Club. And he'll be on the show next week to talk about it. Because who better to feature on the 100th episode than the person who guessed on the very first? But you can also check out a different interview that I did with Paul for Esquire Online. I'll put the link in the show notes. There is some overlap, but there's a lot of new info in that piece, including one of his very first comments about the movie adaptation of Cabin at the End of the World. So yeah, worth checking out. Before I go, I do want to tell you about a creepy thing that happened to me over the weekend. Mildly creepy. In fact, I think I may have made a story up that made it creepy, but so few genuinely creepy things happen to me that, you know, you cling to what you get. Anyway... I posted about this on Twitter, but I think it came across as one of those fake, scary stories that people write for the likes. But no, this is more low-key than that, but true. I went away for a couple of nights with a very old farmhouse in the Peak District. I'm talking 16th century buildings, because I know that blows American minds. First night was okay, horribly uncomfortable bed, but it was fine. Second night, I was woken By the farmyard dog barking in this very guttural, low, angry way. It was a kind of Labrador-Rottweiler type thing. Big beast of a dog. 2am, it's going crazy. Now, this farmhouse was in the middle of nowhere. And there was no traffic, there was nothing. So I'm thinking, why is it barking? Bark, bark, went on for like five minutes. All of a sudden, just shuts off mid-bark. Just like as if someone, had I don't know, blinked out of existence. It was, it was weird. And I lay there and all of a sudden I start hearing this weird crying noise. At 1st sounded like a baby and then kind of like I imagine a fox sounds. And I heard it outside the wall behind my head. Now, one thing I should say is that this farmhouse had three bedrooms. Our bedroom had an external fire door. So I'm already feeling a little bit vulnerable. I hear the the squeaking, the crying. I'm thinking, first of all, is it the dog that's injured? Has something happened? But no, it wouldn't make such a high-pitched noise. Then I hear the noise from over near the door. Every few seconds, this... I can't really do justice to it. but sort of like a... (coughs) Then I hear it by the window on the other side of the room. And it carries on, circling the farmhouse. Suddenly I realise the creepiest thing is... I'm on the second floor. And this thing is right outside the wall. Freak me out. Then, I hear it from the roof above me. And that went on for hours. And all I kept thinking is, it sounds like it wants to get in. And it sounds like it wants to sound weak. Yeah, freak me out. In the morning, the dog seemed fine. But the lingering question is, was it even still the dog? Dum-dum-dum... Anyway, so yeah, that was my creepy experience. When I've said it out loud now, I suddenly realise it. I've basically just told you that I heard an animal in the countryside crying. And it sounds a bit ridiculous. Probably just the fox. But it creeped the hell out of me at three in the morning. So I'm standing by it. What do you think it was? Do you think it was an injured rodent or a fox or a bird? Or if it was, how the hell was it on the roof one minute and by the window the next? You tell me. You can let me know about that or pretty much anything else via Twitter or Instagram at TalkScaredPod or email me direct at talkingscaredpod at gmail.com. I bloody love listener stories, the creepy ones. If you send a good one and give me permission to read it out, I may do so in a future episode. Don't forget, you can support the show via Patreon, link is in the show notes or just search patreon.com slash pod. there'll be bonus stuff from Ursula Tim McGregor and Paul Tremblay very soon, and please dear friends, leave me a review if you haven't already, you know it makes sense we're together again next week for the 100th episode with Paul Tremblay that's just mad, how do we get here thanks for coming along for the ride You're you're all just the best I'm now off to make my wife a lemon and honey tea and to mop her fevered brow. But until next time, use people's preferred pronouns. Keep in mind that billionaires are the enemy. And when in doubt, be more like your badass grandmothers. Read good books and remember, it's good to be scared.